And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Well, Father, open our eyes that we might see all that Christ would have for us in this passage. Help us to trust him as our great champion in the war that sometimes comes to bear so powerfully on us and yet too often is something that we are just oblivious to. And yet, Father, you promise to be victorious and to carry us in your victory. So, Father, help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear how your Spirit is guiding us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back when former Redeemer member Ben Sass was a senator from Nebraska, he often sounded the alarm about our country's cybersecurity. Uh, you might remember that he introduced bipartisan legislation that would in help us improve our nation's critical infrastructure. Last year, he gave a speech. Uh, now he's the president of the University of Florida, but last year he gave a speech in Florida where he warned that still Russia, China, and Iran had both the ability and the motivation to disrupt our economy via cyber attacks. Some of you probably saw the news just this last week that the director of the FBI warned Congress that China was prepared to wreak havoc and to cause real-world harm to the U.S. There's a war going on, but I wonder how often do we actually pay attention to it. For me, it's about once a month. Because about once a month, I get a letter in the mail telling me that some company that I've done business with has been hacked. And so my name and my social security number, my email address, something is out there somewhere. And they promise to give me all kinds of helpful guidance to protect my information, even though they couldn't protect it to begin with. And then periodically we hear the scary stories of a ransomware shutting down a hospital or a city government until uh, a large sum of money is paid. And then, of course, we know that we're not supposed to let our kids put TikTok on their phones, right? Most of the time, though, I live in total oblivion to the battle that rages around me. And in that way, it is very similar to what we've just read in Mark chapter 3. There is another invisible battle going on around us, a spiritual battle. 
So today I want to talk about the reality of spiritual warfare. I want to talk about the state of the battle. And then finally, I want to give you a call to be prepared. I want you to leave here no longer oblivious to what's going on around you, but aware and confident of God's victory. So first, the reality of spiritual warfare. Second, what is the state of the battle? And third, how can you leave here being prepared? And we've been in Mark chapter 3 for several weeks, and in the midst of a lot of action, uh, there's been miracles that we've read about, conflict with the Pharisees, we've got Jesus choosing his disciples. In the midst of all of this, we read in verse 22 that scribes are sent from Jerusalem to check out Jesus. The scribes are actually a kind of investigatory committee that are probably sent from the Sanhedrin down to understand exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus has become kind of a big deal by this point in his ministry. Large crowds are following Jesus. He has begun to gain a reputation as a miracle worker and particularly as someone who can cast out demons. Now, tragically, the scribes completely misunderstand what they have been sent to investigate. They had heard reports of a great battle. They could see the signs of victory as men and women and children were no longer demon-possessed. But instead of believing that God had gone to war against Satan, which is exactly what the Old Testament had predicted would happen, they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed himself, and then on top of that, of actually being in, in concert with, uh, colluding with the prince of demons. Now Jesus takes that accusation and he turns it on its head. In verse 23, he says, guys, how can Satan cast out Satan? That just doesn't make any sense. For that accusation to make sense, Satan himself would have to be divided in his allegiance. He would have to be divided in his efforts, and that would make him powerless. But the very fact that people are demon-possessed shows that he is not powerless. Instead, the devil is alive and kicking. And Jesus' ministry of casting out demons demonstrated that he was at war against that ancient foe. Spiritual warfare is at the heart of Jesus' public ministry. Later on, when Peter would summarize for the crowds of Israel what Jesus had actually done, he described Jesus' ministry in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, as doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil. When Jesus cast out demons... He is robbing Satan of his plunder. That's the analogy that he uses in verse 27. By freeing the men, women, and children who have been claimed by Satan, he's demonstrating his authority. He's demonstrating his power over Satan. But Satan will not go quietly. Later on in the Gospels, we'll read how through Peter... 
Satan will try to get Jesus to abandon his plan to go to Jerusalem to go and die on the cross. We'll see how Satan will enter into Judas's heart to entice him to betray Jesus. Jesus, in one of his most famous parables, even tells the disciples that they must be aware that it is Satan and his demons who are at work in the world trying to take away the seed of the word that Jesus has sown in the world. I'm not sure, but maybe some of you aren't very comfortable with this language of spiritual warfare. Uh, I thought Presbyterians were more cultured than that. Spiritual warfare is not a myth. It's not a pre-modern way of understanding mental illness or epilepsy. No, Satan is real. He is a fallen angel who rebelled against God and then began to work against the purposes of God even before the creation of the world. And ever since, there has been this conflict. Now, what's the current state of this conflict? Well, the first thing I want you to remember is that Jesus' victory over Satan has always been a foregone conclusion. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises Adam and Eve that it would be their son who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent that had deceived them, the serpent that had led them into sin. God said, your sons... Your son is going to crush him. And here in the Gospels, as we see Jesus rescue men, women, and children from their demon possession, we see that he is exerting power over Satan. These initial skirmishes that are recorded in the Gospel as he withstands temptation, as he casts out demons, that's Jesus exerting his power. Power that Satan has no ability to push back against. But his actual victory over Satan will be accomplished at the cross. Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. At that very moment that the world thought that Satan had won because the man who claimed he was God was bleeding out on the cross. At the very moment that the hordes of Satan might have thought that this is the time to establish our victory, well, that's when Jesus was actually securing the freedom for all of us who were bound up in slavery to sin. For all of us who were bound up in slavery to Satan. 
But some of you are careful readers of the Bible and you're starting to scratch your head. And you're saying, well, Eric, if Jesus has triumphed, why then does the Bible say that Satan is right now prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And if Jesus has accomplished this great victory over Satan, why does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil? I mean, what kind of victory is really accomplished if there's so much of a fight left? I think a good way of thinking about this is to think of Christ's victory on the cross like a pebble that's dropped in a still pond. The effects of his victory are like the ripples that merge out from that point where the pebble is dropped. The effects of Christ's victory continue to unfold over time and place. Every time the gospel is believed, every time that people turn from idols to believe in the living God, as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1, every time we see that happen, the victory of Jesus is being applied to specific people. What happened 2,000 years ago on a hill outside the city gates of Jerusalem, won't be seen and felt across the entire creation until Jesus returns. And when Jesus does come back, Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 tells us that he will cast the devil into a lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night. Until that day... We live in anticipation of that day. Confident looking back in the victory that Jesus has secured for us on the cross. But also wary. Wary because just like a rattlesnake can bite after you cut its head off. So that ancient serpent is still a danger even having been defeated by Jesus. Spiritual warfare is real. The battle has been won, but the effects of that victory are still being pushed out through the work that God has called the church to engage in. What's your role? How can you be prepared for this battle? The first thing I want to tell you this morning is that there are no innocent parties in this fight. Many of you here knowingly and confidently belong to Jesus. And I'm going to circle back to you in a minute, so just hold on. But there are some here that are still oppressed by the devil. You are still enslaved by your sin. You are an enemy of God. And it's important for you to hear what Jesus says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's a remarkable statement. 
And that is the good news of Christianity. All sins, whatever blasphemies you have uttered, will be forgiven if you call out to Jesus, I can't save myself. I can't stand in your holy presence. There is no hope for me unless you rescue me. I don't want to be God's enemy. I want to be his child. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to bow the knee to King Jesus. And when you do, you will be immediately rescued from the domain of darkness. Satan will have no claim on you anymore. But if you persist in your rejection, if you persist in your rebellion, if you persist in your unbelief, then you are in danger. Look at verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Some of you are familiar with the language of the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is one of the passages from which we get that language. I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus is speaking specifically here of the scribes that were ascribing his miraculous power to the devil. That's why in verse 30 he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's the people that he was talking about. But it's also important for us to realize the principle that's at stake here. A defiant and constant rejection of Jesus will ultimately close the door on your opportunity for forgiveness. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't think, I'll make that decision tomorrow. Or maybe when I'm older or when I've done what I want to do, repent and believe in Jesus today. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're one of those who, who knowingly and confidently belongs to Jesus, who comes to worship here, who confesses their sin, who professes their faith, let me finish by giving you three ways that you can join the fight today. First, let every day of your life be a day of repentance and faith. When the battle presses in, don't give up. Especially when you're tired. Especially when you're run down. Especially when the accuser has more ammunition against you than you have defenses. Remember this truth from the great German reformer Martin Luther. When the devil throws your sins in your face, and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, so what? Yeah? Is that all you got? I admit that I deserve death and hell. But I know one 
who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I will also be. Folks, if you are a Christian, you cannot commit the unforgivable sin. You can't commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can become callous to sin. And in our hardness of heart, when we cover our sin, when we excuse our sin, when we say, well, we're just not as bad as other people, or when we begin to take grace for granted and say, well, of course Jesus will forgive me. Friends, in our hardness of heart, we miss the Lord's blessing. We miss his leading. We grow cold, not just toward our sin, but we grow cold toward him. So be on guard. Watch yourself. This is the first thing. Every day, be a day of repentance and faith. Join the battle. The second thing is this. Don't ignore the reality of spiritual warfare, but don't give the devil more power than he really actually has. Grew up for a little while in a church and school environment that was very influenced by charismatic Pentecostal theology. And one of my main guys that, uh, he was the principal of our school, uh, he's now in the PCA, and he would hate that I would be telling this story right now. <laughs> he was getting ready to open up a play that the school was doing, and he's up there binding demons left and right particularly calling out the demon of stage fright. <laughs> Folks, there is no such thing. But we can sometimes get so overwhelmed by the reality of spiritual warfare that we begin to find demons under every rock, behind every door. Here's your job. The Bible simply calls on you to resist the devil, and the promise is that he will flee from you. But that isn't because you have come up with some kind of magic incantation, some words. No, James 4, 7, where we get that sense, resist the devil and he will flee from you, well, it actually has something else that it says first. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, even the smallest of us, even the weakest of us, has a great champion. If you are in Christ, then the devil has no power over you. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, John says. Third and finally, live in the victory of your champion. First, join the fight. Second, don't give the devil more power than he actually has. Third, live in the victory of your champion. Christ has won the battle. He has not only plundered the strong man, he has triumphed over him on the cross, and soon, he promises in Romans chapter 16, soon he will crush Satan beneath your feet. That doesn't mean we're going to win every battle. 
In fact, we may often lose. But as often as we lose, just as often, we need to repent and believe again. The end is drawing near. The outcome is certain. When you wish that the fight was over, when you wish that your faith was stronger, remember that Jesus will bring you and the entire created world into the fullness of his grace. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see, not just so that we would be afraid, but so we would be confident, so that we would stand strong in the victory of Jesus for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.